You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The thing that hurts most inside of us is often the very thing that gives birth to joy. Jesus, as he gathers his disciples together in the upper room and now concludes this extended discourse, this conversation he's had with dear friends, assures these friends that in just four days, there won't be anything uh, uh, else worth remembering but joy. Would you pull out your Bibles and uh, open up to John 16, verses 19 through 24. In the Pew Bible, that's on page 879. John 16, verses 19 through 24. And if you're able, let's stand together and read God's word aloud as his people, starting at verse 19. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human life into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day you will ask nothing of me. Very truly I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. I just think it's a very interesting image that Jesus sets before his disciples when he describes the meaning of their pain. Right. I mean, think of it. Jesus is a man, by which I mean at this point, a male. And he's surrounded by a group of male disciples at the moment, even though the female disciples are oftentimes the ones who seem to get it in the gospel. John, here he is with a group of men and he's searching for kind of an illustration or a metaphor that will allow these guys to understand how Jesus can take pain and turn it into joy. And he's going, I got it. It's like child labor. Right. And I'm thinking, what does Jesus know about child labor? Uh, ch- uh, child, sorry, not child labor. Uh, <laughs> uh, childbirth. And, 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 and you're, you know, you're thinking that Jesus is going to say, hey, it's like uh, the travail of a woman giving birth. And he's going to look and see the expressions on all the guys going, oh, yeah, it totally makes sense to me. I, I get it, you know. 
I'm thinking if Jesus looks around at the eyes of these men, he sees something like what I saw uh, when I took that mandatory childbirth class uh, when our first child was born at the hospital offered. And all the guys are there under compulsion. And they've just shown the video, right, guys? You know, you've seen the video. They want you to see what birth looks like. And it's, it's a blood and gore. It's a horrible thing. It's like a driver's ed video they show you, you know? <laughs> as soon as they turn the lights back on, I'm looking at all the other guys in the room, and I'm thinking, they should have showed this video nine months ago. You know, it's, it's too late now. And I sort of look over at my wife, and I've got to apologize. You know, I realize, geez, what, what have we gotten ourselves into? If, if, I, if I knew that I had something inside of me that's going to grow to be the size of a bowling ball and then try to come out, I would live in terror. And, you know, this invites all of our stories, you know, the childbirth stories, the nightmare stories. And, I, you know, the guy right across the circle from me this kind of strapping, talkative guy. And, and he goes, you know, when I was a kid, I looked out of our, uh, the window in our front living room. And I saw the front door of the house across the street from us open up. And this woman in overalls came out. And she took one step, two step, and delivered a baby on the third step of the stoop right there. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I live 20 minutes from the hospital. This is, so, you, you know, the terror of this. And yet, the, the truth is, these disciples knew what the labor pains of birth were all about. Why do I say that? See, today, even with all the sort of uh, comforts and personalizations we offer to try to make our birth experiences a little bit more homey, babies weren't born in hospitals or birthing centers. Babies were born in the home in the first century. And, and Think about it. The home is usually packed with a lot of people. They've got a high density in the home, to say nothing of an urban area, and uh, with no birth control, high infant mortality. Children are being born all the time. And, and, and so you're not doing it privately. It's a family experience. It's indeed a communal experience. Everybody can see it, can hear it, can feel it, knows the horror of, uh, of labor pains. And in fact, I think any given night or day, you could hear the wailing of women throughout the city uh, giving birth. Many of those women will not survive the night. Mortality rates for women in childbirth were just off the charts. And so not only does this feel like death, sometimes it results in, in death. So these guys don't need to see a video. When they hear Jesus describe their pain and suffering... In terms of childbirth, they know what that means. And they know that Jesus is telling them they're about to enter into a very painful place. And they are. Because now they move beneath the shadow of the cross. Jesus' hour has come. And they will know the pain not only of grief. There's something worse than the pain of grief, by the way. They will know the pain of grief when they have abandoned God. There's something worse than the power of grief, even when you know that you have abandoned God in the midst of it. And that is the pain of grief when you know not only have you abandoned God, but God has abandoned you. And that is the cross. The thing about childbirth is... It comes on in an awful sudden. It just comes and it's there. It, it, it seizes you for an eternity of pain. And then in an instant, it delivers you to joy. 
and you remember the pain no more. And Jesus says, this is what hope is all about. The cross of Jesus Christ. But how does this hope work? Well, it works like the labor of God. The first thing I want to say about this is that the cross is the labor of God who has hope for the world, for the whole world. Now, oftentimes we're very familiar with the story of Palm Sunday, Jesus meek and mild on a donkey riding into Jerusalem, headed towards the cross. And yet Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem to suffer. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem for the pain of the cross. You know why Jesus goes to Jerusalem? For joy. For joy. That's what draws him. The writer of the book of Hebrews is very clear about this. He says, it's for the joy set before him, Jesus approached and endured uh, the cross. Jerusalem was to be the city of joy that was the delight of the nations. That sort of epicenter of joy of all creation. God was going to express his love through Jerusalem. And yet now Jerusalem is surrounded by a horror. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem around the outside of its city gates would be signs of execution in Roman occupation. The Goyim, the nations, have taken this city for their own deadly purposes. And yet, Jesus comes for joy. He comes to fulfill the prophecies of those prophets through whom the Lord had spoken to the Israelites in exile. Israel had been destroyed and swept off of its land. And yet, in the midst of that horror, God had raised up prophet after prophet to to tell his people that there was joy coming. Just one example, Isaiah 65. The Lord says, for I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. In the first century, there was a lot of expectation that a Messiah would come. In fact, this particular phrase, historians tell us, was circulating at the time. The child, uh, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Think of that. The birth pangs of the Messiah. Just the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Before Zion was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And so Jesus comes to bring forth the birth of a new heaven and a new earth. You know, I, I get emails from time to time from you asking about the saying that we use sometimes after the reading of the word. I'll say, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read uh, never will. What does that mean, people want to ask? Well, you know, those are the words of Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem in Mark chapter 13. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. It's about the enduring faithfulness of God to his promise, even though... This world has been spoiled by sin. He says, it will be renewed by my grace. There is a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. And this is what Isaiah prophesies. It will be born. 
And yes, it's a military conquest. That's what the palm fronds are about. The Maccabean liberators had rode into Jerusalem with palm fronds and cleansed the temple in the same way. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a warrior. He, he's a warrior. We don't think of him that way. You get a picture of that in the book of uh, Revelation, the end of the Bible, where Jesus comes riding on a horse with a white robe stained in blood, like a warrior who has exacted punishment of the nations and carries with him the blood of vengeance. And yet the blood of Jesus is not the blood of his enemies. The blood of Jesus is his own blood shed for the sins of the world, the cross. So John, both the gospel and the apocalypse refer to him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he comes riding on a donkey, this warrior whose only weapon is the cross itself, the cross Jesus says, I am in you and you are in me. You are in me. You in your pain and the horror of your suffering and the injustice of this planet. All of that is in me. And I take it to the cross. Miroslav Volf says, what we see on the cross is a God who decided he would rather not be God than to be God without humanity. And so he has opened up a space in himself for us. These are birth pains. His hour has come. The, the cross symbolizes a revolution of hope because the cross will lead to the opening up of the grave and from the grave comes the firstborn of all Creation, the one who brings the new heaven and the new earth in himself. And so Jesus says to his disciples, imagine. Can you imagine a world unstained by tears, and sorrow and grief and blood? Can you, like expectant parents who think about, I wonder what the child will be like, what color will her eyes be? What will she love to do? What will make her smile what will we call her? How will she refer to us as she grows over the years? It's all about imagination and anticipation. And Jesus now says to his disciples, hey, in the birth pangs of creation, it's moaning and groaning. Would you dream? That's what the arts are all about. Our banner guild has depicted this here. The stained glass windows, the music that we sing. It fuels our imagination and kindles our spirits towards hope. Imagine the world that Jesus is recreating. They asked Archbishop Desmond Tutu, did you ever doubt? You know, did you ever worry about everything you were dedicating your life to as you resisted apartheid in South Africa would fail? And he said, no. This is Desmond Tutu. He says, when you look at something like Good Friday and see God dead on the cross, nothing could have been more hopeless than Good Friday. And then Easter happens. And whammo. That's his word. Whammo. Death is done to death. And Jesus breaks the shackles of death and devastation, of darkness, of evil. And from that moment on, all of us are constrained to be prisoners of hope. 
There's no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life, because of the resurrection over the greatest point of despair the creation will ever know, the cross. And the cross is the labor of God who has hope for the world. But it's more than that. The cross is also the labor of God who has hope for your pain. The hurt that you carry this morning. It's one thing to know that God has hope for other people and hope for the world and that someday the world ends its story well. But what about that pain that drags me about through life that brings tears to my eyes? Well, there's a little argument going on as Jesus is teaching his disciples. It actually interrupts him. And it's not that they have a question they're willing to ask Jesus. It's a question they stop and ask each other, these disciples. In verse 17, you see uh, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying to us a little while and you'll no longer see me? Uh, and again, a little while and you will see me. You see, they're having a, an argument about time, about chronology, which is the very thing that begins to get skewed when you're in pain. Do you ever notice that? Just lasts a lifetime. Even if it's just a bad PowerPoint, you know, just seems to go on forever when you're really hurting. Pain is like a, a black hole. You know, Einstein told us that black holes just suck things into even time itself. Sucks light and time. Einstein said the closer you get to a black hole, the more time begins to slow down. Slower and slower. And pain will do the same thing to you. It begins to suck everything about you, everything about your life, even things that around you in, into this dark pit of despair within you, this brokenness that begins to characterize your very being. It's what pain wants to do. And it starts to have an argument with you, your pain. It starts to get into the same kind of dispute that these disciples are in. The question of how long. It's an impossible question to answer, but what pain wants to tell you is that, you know, you can have joy before you have pain. Or you can have joy when the pain is all over afterwards. But don't you dare try to have joy in the midst of it. Don't you dare. See, that's why we want to know what the little while is all about. When is it going to be over so I can get back to joy? Jesus says that's not the way it works in childbirth. That's not the way it works between the times of the resurrection and the second coming. Because in this space, the victory of Jesus Christ, which occurs only four days from now, has a kind of a, an eternal character to it that it brings joy even in the midst of suffering. To us, I think sometimes joy seems superficial, Right? Seems like kind of a thin veneer, you know, the plastic smile that you put on because society expects that. We really don't have much respect for positive feelings or happiness, these kinds of things. We think that real, authentic uh, emotion is despairing, right? That's the way we like our artists, Sylvia Plath and Kurt Cobain, you know. Tell me how miserable and desperate we all are, you know. That's getting in touch with what is real. Maybe that's because our culture doesn't know very much about the cross and the birth pangs of the Messiah. Because it's when you know Jesus Christ and the cross that you know he holds together pain with joy, even in your life and mine.
Two things we see about this labor delivery image when we think about our own pain. And the first is just that the real truth is not in the pain, but it's in the joy. The real truth about who you are is not in your pain. It's not that that can characterize you. Because he says, you know, when the child is born, you remember the pain, the travail no more. It's, it's, it lacks significance. How long is the longest labor? It'd be fun to kind of have a little contest here, have the women stand up. You know, I don't know, 30 hours, 36 hours. It's not much more than a day. Okay, two days if you had it really bad. But the pregnancy was nine months. And there might have been years of yearning before that. And if actuarial tables are correct, it'll be decades of life with this child. And so in light of that, the momentary light affliction, pain just seems to go away. Not that it's unreal. If pain were not real, if suffering were not real, God would never have gone to the cross. But God absorbs it into the cross so that we don't have to bear its sting. G.K. Chesterton says in his book, Orthodoxy, man is more himself. Man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Joy is the laughter of heaven, Chesterton writes. See, that's the first thing about your own pain. And and it's it's not the truest thing about you. It's swallowed up by the victory of Jesus Christ. The second thing about our pain is that it's our own personal participation in the labor of Jesus. In the labor pains of the Messiah. I don't know, you know, what it is. You bring, you lost a limb. You have a, a child that's weighing on your heart. There's a failed marriage. There's this pesky cane that goes with you everywhere now. There's the loss of somebody precious to you. And you say, there's no joy in any of these things. And there isn't. But Jesus' cross puts a cross in your life that functions in the same way. As the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the travailing pains that bring forth the resurrection, the new creation. So there's a cross in your life as well, in mine. And, you know, Jesus has said, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And many of us feel like we've got to go and find a cross. Where's my cross? Where's my cross? Jesus doesn't say, go look for a cross. He says, take your cross. You've already got a cross. Every one of us in this room this morning has a cross right now, and you know what it is. You know that hurt deep down inside of your heart. And Jesus says, take that cross and follow me. Because that cross, your hour of suffering, will lead you to an eternity of joy. It's not that Jesus says, I can take your pain someday and I will set it aside and pour joy into your life. He says, no, I turn your pain 
into joy. He's a kind of a wonderful alchemist. There's a woman by the name of um, Margaret Clarkson. She may be known to you. She's a Canadian hymn writer, spent some time in uh, Vancouver Regent, and uh, she writes a book, the title of which is worth everything, Destined for Glory. You and I are destined for glory, she writes. That God displays his sovereignty over evil by using the very suffering that is inherent in evil to assist in the working out of his eternal purpose, she writes. Did you catch that? Margaret Clarkson is a woman with great pain. She, by her own admission, is born into a loveless home. She lives with debilitating headaches and horrific arthritis her whole life. And yet, in her encounter with Jesus Christ, she has discovered one who uses the very evil and suffering in her life. Sometimes it's something that people have done to us that hurts us. Sometimes, honestly, it's stuff we do to ourselves that hurts us. And yet all of this can become the means of rebirth and joy in our lives. The very instruments of God. So the cross is the labor of God who has hope for the world, who has hope for our pain Finally, the cross is the labor of God who has hope for your ministry. Your ministry. Yes, Jesus commissions his disciples to a ministry of new creation. Look at the end of the passage we read, verse 24. Here's how it concludes. Jesus says, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Your joy may be fulfilled, brought to its telos, its perfection, its end, maximized. He's saying, how? How how is our joy maximized? He says, it's by asking in prayer. The ultimate fulfillment of your life and mine is to participate with Jesus Christ in what he is doing to bring the new creation into this old We get to be a part of it. It's as though we are co-creators now because we're in Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, says, God instituted prayer to impart to his creatures the dignity of causality. Your prayers and mine matter in the cosmos. They're bringing about the new creation. Now you go, George, I've tried that prayer thing. I've I've done that. It it doesn't really work, at least not most of the time, right? I mean, I'm in a small group with a group of guys and uh, guys and women. Sorry, Janice. We're down. We're downtown and uh, we're in a boardroom around a conference table. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the guys in the group says, um, let's let's just uh, you know, Jesus talks about prayer several times in this discourse. So it's come up before. And so he says, let's just apply the chewing gum test, right? He says, let's ask God to put a pack of chewing gum in the center of this table, right right here, right now. And I go, well, if you're going to do that, let's give God the BMW test and let's ask it down in the parking lot, not on the conference room table, you know, and let's really go for it. And we talked about, that doesn't seem like it would work, does it? Um, why? I'm going to give you two reasons why. The first is this. God doesn't give us anything for which we ask that would reinforce the old order. Do you catch that? 
When, when the, the, the child is born, the woman no longer thinks of the former things. The, tra- the period of travail and crisis is gone. And so God's not going to reinforce anything that you and I ask for that is part of the system of the old order, fallen as it is. It's going away. We're remembering it no more. And God says, no, thanks. They've been there and done that. It brings tears. I am into joy. And I'm not going to give you that for what you ask. It's an example of this. The Apostle Paul, you know, this great teacher, scholar. And he asked that God would remove the thorn in his flesh three times. Figuratively, we don't really know what it was. But we know that Paul says he has a sense that God does not grant that request because it would puff him up and lead to pride in his life. It's in, God says to Paul, Paul, your life is not about pride. It's about humble service. It's about love. It's about joy. I can't answer that request in the way you'd like me to. The other reason why God sometimes will not answer our request in the way that we desire is that he will not give us anything that will undermine the birth pangs of labor. That's the process of recreation in the world. It's the process of recreation in our lives. And he he believes in it. It has to be. That's the way he's decided. So anything that would reduce the stress of those birth pangs, God's not going to tamper with them. He will not shorten the labor just to make our lives more comfortable. Jesus tried this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus himself, you'd think he'd get answers to his prayer. He says, look, God, Father, if you could take this cup away from me. But with all the faith that Jesus himself could muster, he knows the Father will not answer that because he knows his mission is about the renewal of heaven and earth. So you and I have been given union with Jesus Christ and so that we're, as it were, in him, literally a part of the interactive fellowship of the Trinity, the love and joy, which is the ether of heaven. Now we've stepped into it. And all that they're up to, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we get to participate in. And so Jesus says, ask the Father directly. Ask them for your ministry. You see, just as the Son was sent into the world, so now I send you, the church, and I have given each and every one of you an assignment. You're not perfect, but you're in the right place. You have eyes to see hurting people around you, the workplace, at home, family, on the news. You, right where you are, you, right who you are, with the gifts that I have given you, are in a place to deploy the laughter of heaven. Call it down, he's saying. Ask and it will be given to you because you are my agents of change. Jesus is the one through whom all things are created. We read at the beginning of the gospel. He's the word. It's a reference in the beginning to the book of Genesis when we see the the Holy Trinity creating and making all things a blessed, joyful state. This garden, all is good. And he's talking to someone. He's saying, let there be and there was light. And now he's saying, You be the voice of creation. You say to the Father, let there be joy. Let there be peace. Let there be justice. See? That's your ministry. Every member is a minister, we say in this church, and we believe it. Because we are the hope of the world. Gosh, that's scary. But we are because Jesus Christ has decided to bring new life through us. Let's begin today in prayer.
God, we bring ourselves before you. We cast ourselves upon your mercy because we carry hurts that are deep and disfiguring. But we know that these pains are but birth pangs that will lead us to joy. And we know that if there is one thing the world's tyrants and brutes cannot tolerate, it is people who do not fear death, but who laugh, who enjoy mirth. And we pray that you might make us just that kind of people who can hold on to the pain with hope and who can have hope for the people in the world that you've created that we can call upon you for the realization of that hope in their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.